Hello, and welcome to another message from Aldinga Bay Baptist Church. If you'd like to find out more about us or what we believe, please visit aldingabaybaptist.org.au. Thank you for that Bible reading. Thanks, Brian. Uh, and um, big thanks to you as a church. Um, thanks particularly to Andrew for inviting Kerry and I to come along. And everything you said was true for us the same way. Um, we really appreciated the warmth of your fellowship and getting to know some of you a bit better, connecting with some old friends, of course. But um, really, we just Terry and I were just um, have commented a number of times to one another. Just what a wonderful camp it's been. Very well organized, Terry. Thumbs up. Um, certainly well run, but also just warm and friendly. And you've been a very uh, welcoming to us. We felt like we we've just been, you know, welcoming to everything that you've done. And um, and in some respects, that's really a picture of what today's sermon is about. I think so. Top marks to you as a church, and uh, I, I I think that uh, we we don't feel like we've given up a weekend. We feel like we've been blessed and we've been given a gift. So thank you for that. We, um, we've had a look at uh, two versions of faith in the book of Ruth so far, right? So we've had a look at the faith of Naomi, the transactional faith. Uh, we've had a look at the, the faith of Ruth, the redeeming faith, that really deep, um, really confronting, but um, inviting, redeeming faith of Ruth. And Ruth is really the, the hero of the book of Ruth, of course. But there's one more picture that we need to look at, really, to complete the book of Ruth, and um, we'll, we'll come to that. And, and of course, that's the story of Boaz, the picture of Boaz as well. Um, before we get into the word, let's pray together and let's ask God to bless our understanding of it too, all right? Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for this book. It is, in so many ways, it's, it's a short story, but so much, uh, so much is there in this story that you've given us a, a real deep insight into your character and into your heart, even. And, um, and we thank you for this book. We thank you for uh, the, not just what it communicates, but the way it communicates to us. And it speaks, it tells us so much about you that we need to know for our time as well. It's a timeless book in that, res- in that respect. It's a true uh, picture of, of what your word is and, um, and how it, it's living and not just relevant, but um, it gives us uh, both life and insight. And we pray as we look it, this final message and, and, the, and the story, the picture of Boaz that's here in the book of Ruth, now we pray that you would, as you have done, guide and direct our thinking, um, keep our hearts open for us, extend your grace to us that we might be able to, um, we might be able to interact with your word in the way that you have offered it to us. And we pray that your spirit would very actively be with us as we, as we have a final look at this book together. And we do thank you for the time to be able to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, everybody loves Boaz, right? Um, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's just a wonderful guy. He's a very good character. He, there is, there is, uh, he's quickly drawn in many respects. You know, it's not a long book. And one of the things that you need to take stock of with Ruth is because it's, it isn't a long book, it's actually quite compact. It's very economical with its details. So if you come across a detail, uh, there's a very good reason for it being there. And it's important to things that we, you know, we can kind of sort of read over in a story or we might neglect. They're probably there for a reason. And they're either 
giving a bit of color that's important or they're giving us a detail that we need to pick up on as well. And that a lot of that is very much germane to the character of Boaz. Boaz is just, he's just a great guy. Um, in fact, if, uh, if I was slipping back into my um, imitation of the Jewish mother um, from yesterday, which I won't do because it's not culturally appropriate, I would say Boaz is a real mensch, right? He's just a really good guy. Um, and, and, and that's important to this story. Um, and I'll say this up front, and then we'll take a look at some of the details about Boaz. That's important for a reason. So where Ruth, and, and this again is, is unusual about the book of Ruth, the degree to which, the extent to which it gives us an insight into personal faith and the quality and the compelling nature of a particular kind of personal faith. Where Ruth is really a picture, it speaks to the issue of personal faith and this individual um, understanding of God, trust in the God of Israel. Boaz speaks to the people of Israel as the people of Israel. He's an Israelite. And his character and his place in the story are right at the heart of everything that's central and characteristic of the people of Israel. But more especially, it's a picture of what the people of Israel themselves are supposed to look like. So as a character, he speaks to the heart of the people of Israel as a whole people, as a nation, and, and what God has intended for them to be and, and what he's intended for them to be like as a people. So what is he like, Boaz? Well, again, some of the details are... Um, sort of appear insignificant in passing, perhaps, but they're there for a reason, and they're important. The Bible reading that we just had from chapter 2, for example, uh, there's, a, there's just a little moment here when Boaz comes to the field, about the middle of that passage, uh, uh, verse 4, um, as he goes out to uh, kind of oversee the, the reaping of the barley, he meets the, the people out there working the field as reapers. And, and it says, he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Typical, common, sort of standard, polite greeting in an Israelite society, Israelite culture. And you could easily sort of let that one go. But the... You have to ask the question, given the, the, the brevity of this book, the economy of the space of this book, the story, why does the writer of the book even include that little moment in there? There's a reason. One of the reasons, I think the key reason, is that um, it, is, it is a cultural thing. It is a sort of a, a, almost a, a cliche greeting response. But it's, it's the godly thing to do. Boaz is obviously a religious man. He takes seriously his obligations as a Jew. And so, when he goes out into the fields to meet the workers, the first thing he does is he blesses them in the name of God. And you see that they respond back. Could be just a superficial cultural thing, if that's all there were, but there's more. So, that little moment. Um, then there's, um, there's another, again, you could easily slip by. We don't, we don't do gleaning in our culture, right? So a lot of the, the, 
the Levitical rules around um, gleaning and why that's there and who it's meant to benefit and, and how the, the owners of land are meant to sort of, uh, they're meant to, to consider the needs of the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, the poor and the vulnerable in their society. A lot of that sort of passes by us, but it's important, important details. So for example, in the law of Leviticus, I think I mentioned it the other day, when, you, uh, when it's harvest time, and you've got your harvesters out there, your clan are harvesting your, your fields. Um, if in the process of harvesting, you happen to forget and leave a, a sheaf of, of grain behind, wheat or barley, leave it behind in the field. Um, it, the, the Leviticus, I think it's Leviticus 23 says, don't go back for it. Leave it there for the gleaners. Let the poor people who are out there in the field picking up the, the grains that have fallen off the stalks let them come across it and, and have it for themselves. It's a gesture of generosity to the need of the poor and the vulnerable. Okay, that's, that's the rule, that's the, sort of the obligation. What Boaz does is he actually tells his workers, for the sake of Ruth and Naomi, when you're out there and you're harvesting and you're bundling that grain together into, into sheaves, leave a few behind in the way so that Ruth will find them. Now, he doesn't have to do that. But you see, the character is hard. He's a generous man. So he goes above and beyond the law because he recognizes this young woman, this vulnerable young woman, is caring for her mother. And, and he's moved by that. So he's, he's generous. He's a, he's a good guy. He doesn't do just what he has to do. He goes beyond. But I think the most, in some ways, the most moving moment and now I don't want to give you the impression, um, well actually I would love to give you the impression that my, uh, my biblical Hebrew is really solid and I'm actually quite accomplished and if I had to we could sit down and we could go through the book of Ruth and I could sort of take you through it line by line. And, uh, I'd love for you to have that impression. It would be a false impression, however. Um, so let me disabuse you of that right on the, on the outset. Um, but. I know enough in reading through, and, and the book of Ruth is really appealing this way, partly because it is a story. So it, it you know, kind of carries you along where you're having to do a bit of work, perhaps, to, to work at some of the translation. And, and just again, just to be clear, no, I did not read the whole book of Ruth in Hebrew, Old Testament Hebrew. But some of these passages, uh, especially in the language, they're really quite moving. Uh, and the one I'm thinking of at this point is in chapter 3. This is where, of course, Ruth now has gone. She's really been sent by her mother-in-law to Boaz, to the threshing floor, to meet Boaz there in the night. This vulnerable young woman to offer herself to Boaz, right? And she's lying at his feet and he wakes up and he realizes who it is. And, and he speaks to her. He says, now, of course, this is the critical moment, right? This young woman, in, the, in this very private moment, has made a gesture. She's offered herself to Boaz. And that can go either of two ways, either Boaz, and either is, in a sense, culturally sanctioned, culturally acceptable. <coughs> Boaz can, at that point, take her as his concubine, his mistress. And, um, and you know, it's sort of understood He's free to do that. 
because she's, she's offered herself to him openly. Or he can marry her. He can, he can offer to take Ruth as his wife. And she doesn't have a choice in this at this point. She's offered herself, uh, essentially out of need, out of desperation. She's offered herself. And what does Boaz do? I, I think, uh, really, to, to me, particularly as a man perhaps, this, this is a quite a powerful moment because um, Boaz responds to her in this way. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, this is his answer, May you be blessed by the Lord, by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Isn't that, just think about that young woman in that moment and her vulnerability. And what does this guy do? He's tender-hearted and he guards her dignity. He doesn't take advantage of her, doesn't even think of taking advantage of her. But not only that, and again, you sort of, you get a little bit of this feel for it here in the English, but in the Hebrew it's quite powerful because the relationship of power in the culture between these two, Boaz is a senior male figure, uh, Ruth is, she's not even an Israelite, so she's a foreigner, and she's a young woman. And in the language, it's really, class and station are really obvious. They come out much more clearly. If you're speaking up to someone who's above you, or if you're speaking down to someone who socially is, is beneath you, and there's even several versions of this. And the version of the language here is, is of intimate family. Boaz is not speaking down to Ruth as someone beneath him. He's speaking to her as if she is a close member of his own family. Really out of character. Totally out of character. But it, it's, it's the heart of Boaz, isn't it? You see the character coming through in the way he speaks to this young And not only, as I said, does he not take advantage of her in this moment, he, he, he speaks to her in a way that he's actually giving her credit for being kind to him. You get that? That's amazing, isn't it? In fact, and this is, this is an important issue, a little detail as well, he thanks her for her chesed, her, her God-like compassion and kindness. It's a word that's used in the, in the old, throughout the Old Testament, primarily in relationship to God through his covenant to Israel, his faithfulness to that covenant, the loving kindness, most often is the way we translate it, the loving kindness he shows to Israel because of his deep commitment to them. And Boaz, I think Boaz is really telling us here, he recognizes in Ruth, in her, in her nature, and the quality and the character of her faith, he recognizes in Ruth a godlike quality of compassion and of love and of loyalty. That's, that's would, that, that would be, uh, wouldn't escape the notice of an Israelite audience hearing this story, reading this story. Hesed, the, the loving kindness that she shows to Boaz by choosing him over younger, wealthier, whatever. 
she, from his point of view, he's saying, you know, you, you had your choice, you could have had your choice, and I'm, I'm flattered that you would, you would choose me. And, and I will honor and I'll respect that. So, a beautiful moment, but it's, again, it's another brief but really telling insight into the character of Boaz. And I've used two other titles or two other labels to talk about the other kinds of faith, the kind Ruth's, uh, Naomi's transactional faith, or kind of essentially her relationship with God on the basis of what God, will, what they do for each other, transactionally. The redeeming, the deep, uh, open-hearted, trusting faith of Ruth, the redeeming faith, Boaz is a different picture, yet again, and a really important third picture. And while I don't have a really good title for it, what we see in Boaz, in his faith, the character of his faith, is confidence, deep confidence in the goodness of God. He is able to respond, and what we see as he interacts with even the workers in his field, at every point, his response to the situation is based on a deep confidence in the goodness of the God of Israel. And that is the picture of what Israel itself is supposed to look like. And that's why the character of Boaz and the faith of Boaz is really speaking now to the people of Israel. So much of this book, as I said before, is really uh, an exploration of personal and individual faith. But there's a really important additional element. And that is, um, this book does speak to the people of Israel as the people of Israel. It sort of pointed out yesterday that genealogy at the end gives it a much bigger historic and national context. That's important. And, and, and so Boaz enters into the picture then as, in a sense, the illustration, the, the, the living picture of what Israel as a people are supposed to look like and the faith of the people of Israel is supposed to look like. They are supposed to have, as a nation, confidence in the goodness of God, deep confidence in the goodness of God, a character of faith that makes them a priest, a priesthood as a people to the nations, right? And that's exactly what God called them to be. When he set them apart and he plunked them down in that particular part of the of the ancient Near East, he commanded them to be a priesthood to the nations. I've set you apart, not only so that you can enjoy my blessing, but so that the peoples, the nations around you, will understand, will know who I am. They will learn my character through my interaction, my loving interaction with you. And of course, that's the thing that they struggle with, historically right, throughout all of the Old Testament. and. Um, and in some respects, it's a thing that we struggle with. Because this is our call. Um, and if you don't even have to take my word for it, um, this is our call. Um, we are now that priesthood to the nations. And if you, if you want to, you can look at uh, 1 Peter, but I'll read it for you. This passage comes to you from second chapter of 1 Peter. And this is what Peter says. To, um, to the Roman Christians, he says, as you come to him, a living stone, so this is uh, chapter 2, verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, out, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, literally as the temple, which is now, of course, um, no longer houses the Spirit of God. That building in Jerusalem is no longer valid as a place of worship because God's Spirit is no longer there. Literally, you are, you are living stones being built up as a, as, a, as a temple, as the temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are that priesthood, of which Boaz is the, the, the personalized picture. It is our calling as the people of God now to live with a quality of faith that is based on a deep confidence in the goodness of God. Now, I'm not speaking to you as individual believers. As individual believers, I think the operative, the operative uh, sort of picture here is Ruth's picture, right? The, the more personal individual. But as a church, as a fellowship, as the people of God, Boaz speaks to us as a body. And our faith, our, our corporate faith, what the testimony that we have as a community, is meant to reflect that deep confidence in the goodness of God. Boaz can afford to be generous because he knows God is generous. He doesn't just think or believe that God is He knows God is generous. And that, that certainty, that deep conviction, colors everything that he does in his interaction with life and with the world and his response. And that's the very character that is meant to characterize our response to life and to the world. It's meant to be our testimony. In that passage, Peter talks about um, as a holy priesthood making sacrifices. And I, I sometimes think we we maybe look, we, 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 we cop a lot of flack as a church to be sure in our world. And, and even among us, we can be very hard on ourselves as the church always talking about what the church should be and what it should look like and how inclusive it should be and how, you know, it's how its focus should be. So we can be a little hard on ourselves. Um, take this maybe in a different spirit. But as the church, um, we as a priesthood, as a holy priesthood, we are called to the role. The picture that's before us there is the picture of the priesthood in Israel, making sacrifices on behalf of the people, intervening, mediating the grace of God to the people. And I think Peter is quite serious when he's calling us as the church to that role for our world. So our role as the church, along with everything else that it is, and I think we've, Terry and I have actually seen quite a beautiful a little picture of that here at your church camp this weekend, the fellowship that you enjoy together. There is a bigger role to the world itself, to our broader community, to the, to, and, and that, that very much includes the non-believing, the unbelieving community that we're a part of. As a priesthood to that community, making sacrifices, mediating the grace of God to that community and intervening for that community, um, to God and advocating on behalf of that community to God himself. That's a role that we're called to. And we're called to that role with the character of Boaz that we can trust that God is good 
as good, in fact, better than even than we think he is. With that deep confidence. That's meant to be the character of our testimony back to the world that we live in as a church. And this, the sacrifices that we make on behalf of that world um, as, a, as, a, as a church, as a fellowship, I think that's a really interesting challenge. What does that mean? And what does that look like? I'm not going to try to tease that out for you at great length because I really think that is a question for a, a church, a local church, like, like you are, a local church of fellowship. Really for every local church, for every fellowship that functions as a, as a body, as a unit, to ask that question among themselves because the character of that sacrifice will be different from one community to another based on the needs, the, the challenges, the problems, um, and the struggles of understanding God that, that each community faces individually. I think it's a good question, though. And, you know, and if, if you want to take me seriously, you might, at least on that, you might ask yourselves at some point along the way as a church, what sacrifices are we called to make on behalf of our larger community as a priesthood to that community? in order to mediate the grace of God to that community that, that can't ask those questions on its own behalf, that can't appeal to God on its own behalf, that, you know, as we, as we all know, may even question whether there is a God to appeal to in the first place on its own behalf. But that's exactly the role that we're called to, to mediate the grace of God to our community as a church. I think... I think the, and, and the testimony of the church is, you know, never, never underestimate, never underestimate your testimony to your community as a church. Even if you feel like, you know, we don't say, we don't do enough evangelistic outreach, we don't share it, we don't witness enough to people in our community and so forth and so on. Look, um, if, you, if you didn't say a word, your testimony as a community of faith would not go unnoticed. Promise you that, and I and I can say that with confidence, because I know it's important to God. It is God's intention to glorify Himself in you as a community, and if that's God's intention, that's what will happen. But I think the world that we live in, there's a real, there's this funny sort of, I don't know, it's almost a schizophrenic or private argument with God that goes on. This is the world that we live in that will even quite boldly say, "Oh well, God is dead." don't believe in God doesn't exist. Or we've disproved the existence of God, even to that extreme, even that sort of atheistic element in our, in our society. But at any rate, um, in, our, in our world, particularly in our society, there is this sort of private, ongoing argument with God. I can't trust God, um, which is interesting. And if, if God is dead, if God doesn't exist, why is that even a question? But this is a very, very common, I think this, I think a lot more people actually conduct this argument or this discussion, this debate in their heads than, than we even realize. But I can't trust God because either he's not good, not all good, or he's not all powerful. Because if he was all good, we wouldn't see the terrible things around us that we see happening in the world, and the, the trauma, the, the, the grief, and the, the terrible things that we see and experience. Um, or if 
or he's not all powerful, and therefore he can't do anything about this. He might be he might be good. He might have good intentions, but he's not powerful enough to to fulfill that goodness, to manifest that goodness absolutely. So I can't trust him because either he's not good or he's not all, all powerful. He's not capable. As the church, what foundation do we stand on? Again, we don't even say it really, but what foundation do we stand on? We stand on the cross, don't we? I mean, if there's an image more powerfully than any other that you would point to, if somebody said to you as a, as a, you know, as a believer, as a member of the church, well, what does the church stand for? I really think the simple, shortest, and the most wonderful answer to that question is the cross. Because the cross is God's incredibly counterintuitive, countercultural, absolutely unanswerable response to that debate. Is he good? Is he powerful? Who is on that cross? Who did God allow to take that place on that cross? His son, his very son, his only son. And what person would allow their child to take upon the sins of their enemies in a tortuous death? You have to be pretty good to do that. You have to be good in a category of goodness that we can't even get our heads around. That's how good you have to be. So is God good? Who is on that cross? Is God powerful? What does that cross accomplish? The very moment, I think this is incredible. It, it's, in fact, it's, it's, it's even hard for me to say, but the very moment when Satan is looking at everything he's done and he's rubbing his hands together and he's saying, that's it. I've got it. I've done it. I'm going to win. What does God do? He uses the very strategy of Satan at his worst, at his most evil, and he completely overturns that to undermine forever the work of Satan, the power of Satan, the consequence of death. That's power. When you know your enemy so well, and you are so totally in a different category to everything that he can do or understand that you can actually use his strategy to defeat him. That's power. So is God good? Is he powerful? And what do we stand on as the people of God as a church? That cross, that incredible argument, answer really to the debate, is he good, is he powerful? Is he good enough, is he powerful? That's our testimony. And that is the testimony that the world so badly needs. Arguably because you know, we, we all sense, we all feel the, the degree to which we're living in sort of extraordinary times, as much as ever. And if, if this is the lead up to the end, and in, in many respects, we're, really we're, we're encouraged right throughout um, the, the New Testament to live to live as if the end were near, right? The early believers, and that was 2,000 years ago, the early believers, they had this incredible expectation that it's just around the corner. 
We've really got to get this right. We've got to, we've got to be committed. We've really got to be the people of God and own that role and that identity because the end is really close. And for whatever reason, that's, that's got to be a, a natural and deep character of who we are as the people of God, whenever the end actually comes. But as much as we sense that, this is the kind of thing that we should expect. The world that we live in now, the situation that we live in now, is a stepping stone in that direction. It's a very important stepping stone in that direction. Then our testimony is the people of God. And the deep confidence in the goodness of God is more, more powerful, more relevant, more essential than ever. And I want to tell you a story. Um, this is a story in, in, in another way that illustrates the character of the faith of Boaz. That is the character of the faith of the people of God, as we're called to be. It's a, it's a simple story, personal story. Growing up in the U.S. Um, as a young uh, student, young, young primary school student, so I was about 10 years old at McCarver Elementary School in Tacoma, Washington. We used to play baseball every day in the break. And um, we were always being told off by the vice principal, Mr. Durham. Uh, and I, I still, to this day, I still occasionally when I'm having a really restless night, I see images of Mr. Durham <laughs> in the form of these sort of large, monstrous, alien-like figures that are sort of lurking in the shelf. So Mr. Durham was a scary guy. But at any rate, Mr. Durham, the vice principal, used to tell us all the almost every day, you kids, don't play so close to the building. You're going to break a window. And we'd move off a little bit, you know, a few meters off, and then it gradually sort of drift back to where we always played baseball. And we did that every day. And um, one day, uh, I was actually pitching. You pitch in baseball, you don't bowl. It was pitching, <laughs> pitching to one of my friends, John. And I threw the ball. He connected beautifully, smacked that ball dead on, and you know what happened, of course. Perfect arc through the air, and the window of Mr. Durham's office. <laughs> Spot on. And before we, and we were stuck, we stood there, we looked at that hole, that shattered glass in the window, and we couldn't, we couldn't move. The, the flight instinct hadn't quite kicked in. <laughs> and before it could, I think Mr. Durham had some sort of superhuman ability to move really quickly, especially when it came to intimidating children. He zoomed out of his office around the corner in a flash, and he said, who hit that ball into my window? And at this point, we're watching our lives sort of flash before our eyes. Ten years old, have I really, have I accomplished anything? And he says, all right, you kids, on the ground now, sit on the ground. And we drop to the ground, sitting there, sort of looking up. He walks up, and he looks at us He's just kind of working us up a bit now, connecting with each one of us, one at a time. And then he says, now you're going to tell me who hit that ball through the window? And I'm going to give you a minute. And if you don't tell me who hit that ball through the window, I'm going to call each one of your fathers and I'm going to tell them what happened. And we'll work out what will, you know, what, what the punishment will be. And kind of left it, you know, the, to the imagination of a 10-year-old child is just really, really wild. So without being too specific, you can accomplish a lot more intimidation 
than if you actually tell them what's going to happen. So he left it sort of open-ended. Well, we were sitting there, and we were kind of looking at each other, like, okay, look, whatever happens, we're in this together. If we all die now, (laughs) we'll die together in brotherhood and fellowship. No one, you know, no one break, and we'll all be okay, or not. But anyway, whatever happens, we'll all be in this. And we're kind of looking back and forth. And all of a sudden, my friend John, the one who hit the ball, he stood up. And we're like, ah, don't do it, John. Don't do it. He said, and he said this calmly. I mean, none of us were calm at that point. But John said, calmly, it was me. I hit the ball through the window. Fessed up to it, just like that. And even Mr. Durham was shocked. And he looked at him. He couldn't quite believe that this was happening. He looked at him, and then this kind of this thought process passed through his mind, and he said, ah, he said, I see. And you're telling me now because you're afraid that if I tell your father, you'll be in big trouble. And John said, no. He said, I know my dad. My dad loves me, and he's fair. And whatever he does, it'll be right. So you can call my dad if you have to. Perfectly calmly, perfectly ten-year-old confidence was amazing, and and I think even Mr. Kent, Mr. Jones was really impressed by that. You wouldn't, you couldn't help it, because you? We were all sitting there looking at this kid, and Mr. Durham must have all and was thinking, "Wow." Um, but that's the, that's the point, isn't it? That's exactly the point. My dad, my father loves me, and he will do what's right. Imagine living with that kind of confidence. Imagine living with that kind of confidence as as a Christian with regard to our Heavenly Father. That every situation that you face, every intimidating, every challenging, every frightening, every difficult situation you face, you could step back and you could look at that and you would say, you know what? My Father loves me. And he will do what's right. And I can have confidence in that. That's who we are as the people of God. That's who we're called to be as a priesthood to the world that we live in, to our community. It's a holy priesthood. That's the picture of Boaz, the picture of faith in the character of Boaz, that God wanted so badly to communicate to the people of Israel for their role as a priesthood to the nations. And it's the role that we inherit in Christ. And it is the role and the faith that our world so badly needs to see, especially now. And like I said, if you don't say a word as a church to your community, if you never hold an evangelistic rally, or you don't door knock your neighborhood, you don't do any of those things, If you live with that confidence and you carry one another in such a way that you can build that confidence and you support one another and challenge one another and pray for one another and just do the basic things that the people of God do, they'll get it. They'll definitely get it. And I'm willing to bet that that private debate that they're having will start to take a little bit of a different turn as they see that testimony. 
manifest before them in a community of people who shouldn't be able to get along together, who shouldn't be kind to one another, who shouldn't be characterized by the support that they give to one another, and who shouldn't really care a hoot about anybody outside of their own fellowship, but do. Don't get it. That's the book of Ruth, as I have it to offer you. I appreciate the conversations that we've had around this book. I really appreciate the invitation to share it with you because, as you can guess, for me, it's been a wonderful journey. I've really thoroughly enjoyed my study of the book of Ruth, um, even though I had to do most of it in English, right? Um, but a really, really meaningful little book that tells us so much that I think timelessly, beautifully, is still extremely relevant for us today. So pray with me, all right? Father, we're, we really are grateful for the, the opportunity to study this book together, and we get that that's exactly what you intended, revealing it to us in this way. It's a book for us, it's for people, and uh, we do appreciate the beautiful picture of Ruth and how she speaks to our hearts as believers, but, but the bigger picture as well, it's definitely there. Who we are as your people, what we're called to be, and the confidence, the trust that you invite us to have. You're constantly, constantly reaching out to us, inviting us to trust you deeper, inviting us to enjoy the full blessing of, of, of being able to face every situation of life together with a deep sense of your goodness and your power, standing with us as we meet those challenges, as we face those challenges. And I certainly, Father, pray for this church who have blessed us, Terry and I, as a couple, in many ways and for a long time, that, that the, the deeper nature of what's really going on here will become more and more manifest for its community as these people, these dear people, brothers and sisters in Christ, live out their faith together and fulfill the role to which you've called them as a priesthood to their community. And I do pray for those people for whom that will make a huge difference, that they get it and that you help them for their sake, for the sake of eternity, for the sake of your love for them, but especially for the sake of your glory. And it is for your glory and your honor that we live, and that's what we seek, and that's what we pray you would help us to fulfill with you. In Jesus' name.